May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. The verdict is in, and we are back from a few episodes ago. I have the dream team assembled, Mike Grudberg and Robert Heim, to help us talk about the Theranos verdict, the conviction of Elizabeth Holmes. Hello, Michael. How are you doing? Hello, Rich. Glad to be back. Glad to have you. Robert, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks, Rich. How are you? I'm great. So we got a verdict this week after a lengthy deliberation. Robert, can you summarize for us what the jury did here? Sure, Rich. After seven days of deliberations, the jury came back essentially with a mixed verdict. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes was convicted and found guilty of four of the 11 criminal charges that she was accused of. The jury was deadlocked on three counts and then Ms. Holmes was acquitted on four charges. And substantively, that breaks down into a scenario where the jury convicted her of defrauding investors in Theranos, but acquitted her of defrauding patients who were using her blood tests. This was the end of a lengthy 15-week trial, and it was a mixed result for the prosecutors and the defense. So the jury thought, in short, that she did lie to investors, but she didn't necessarily lie to patients who are using the technology. Is that right? That's right. The prosecutors had a lot more evidence tying Elizabeth Holmes into misrepresentations that were made to investors. Specifically, Ms. Holmes was found guilty of exaggerating and making misrepresentations about the capabilities of the company's uh, blood analysis and blood tests. And it was uh, harder and uh, more difficult for the prosecutors to really tie in Ms. Holmes to the patient aspect of it because there was many layers uh, between Ms. Holmes and the patient tests, including lab technicians and lab managers who were the ones that ultimately relayed the results to patients. But Ms. Holmes was directly involved in making those misrepresentations to the investors, and that's what the jury convicted her of. Michael, what do you think uh, made the difference here for the prosecution? Well, Rich, I think that the testimony of the investor witnesses, uh, it may have been the insuperable obstacle for her. I mean, just to follow up on what Robert had to say uh, regarding the medical aspect of this, torn from this afternoon's headlines, this is the first interview that I've seen with the juror, where she basically said with regard to the medical case, they weren't persuaded that Ms. Holmes meant to mislead patients with respect. Essentially, she didn't decide to to intentionally sell them tests that didn't work. But by the same token, there was a parade of investor witnesses who were able to offer direct testimony. Sometimes it stinks to be the boss, and she was the boss, and she was the person out front and the only person uh, in communication with many of the major investors and indeed the investors on, on whom she was convicted. So yeah, we, we will talk later uh, about her decision to testify or not, but I think that the difficulty that knocked her out was a difficulty she confronted all along. She was personally in communication with people who were able to say that what she told me was not true. Well, let's let's turn to later right now. What do you think about the decision to have her testify? I mean, defendants have a right not to testify. That's something that's very much a part of American jurisprudence, but here she did take the stand. And uh, what do you think of that? 
look, you, you can't tell much from distance. I, I did try and read everything I could about her performance. I don't think she hit it out of the park, but I thought she did a decent job in ways that I think will become relevant to sentencing. Look, if, if you made me guess, I think she would have gone down anyway. Robert, what do you think? Did she help herself or hurt herself? I think she helped herself uh, here. She was acquitted of four of the charges, and, and there was a deadlock on three other counts. In, in a fraud case like this one, one of the key elements the prosecutor has to prove is intent, and a person in a criminal case has to be shown beyond a reasonable doubt to have intended to make fraudulent statements. And what a defendant can do, especially in white-collar cases like this one, is really testify at length about their mindset. And I think that's what Ms. Holmes tried to do here in her defense and testify how she believed in this technology and how much she, she worked at the company and she didn't sell any shares of her stock. So a lot of her own testimony was really focused on her lack of intent, was her position in terms of lack of a desire to mislead investors and, and perhaps believing in what she was saying from a, from a subjective perspective. Those are good points. Also, I think in this kind of trial, a jury may be less forgiving of a defendant who doesn't testify. I know they're instructed by the judge not to pay it any mind, but when you have someone accused of significant fraud like this, a jury expects to hear from them, I think, deep down, right, Michael? Rich, I think that's fair to say. I mean, insert your punchline about what experts are worth, but the experts will tell you that polling of jurors before or after or in in mock trial settings, generally speaking, jurors, white-collar setting, sort of expect and want to hear the explanation from the defendant on trial. It doesn't result in very many of them testifying, but that is a reality that you have to deal with in ways that they seem not to in street crime kind of settings. Well, she did it. She took the stand. She's convicted on four counts. Where do you see the sentence going? We'll start with you again, Michael. Uh, Look, I, I won't go through the whole rigmarole. I will say, just for general background, as we discussed before, there is a set of sentencing guidelines that will incorporate the most relevant factor will be the $140 million in change that was invested by the people as to whom she was convicted, that will get plugged into a grid. It will drive a sentence after many adjustments, all of which will be fought about, that will range somewhere from the teens up into the 20s. Though you do see people doing those guidelines calculations in the media that, that take it even somewhat higher than that. I think that's unlikely, but At the end of the day, she's likely going to be coming to the court for sentencing with a guidelines recommendation that is not binding on the judge in the teens or 20s of years. I do not believe it'll be that high. I don't know much about Judge Davila as a sentencer, if I'm pronouncing that right, for whatever it's worth. And it might not be worth much. He is an Obama appointee. He's married to a federal defender. So whatever. Most judges, when they depart or go outside, those recommended guidelines go downward, especially in connection with these fraud guidelines. I would imagine that she will not get a guideline sentence here, but you know, I would be surprised as, as we said when we were last together, she didn't get a significant sentence. I think I'm gonna up my estimate. I said five half dozen years would be just. I still think that would be a just sentence, but I'm not gonna impose it. And, and I think that the, the combination of circumstances here 
puts her at risk of a double-digit sentence, at least, which is a very, very significant sentence for a first-time offender. Right. Robert, single digits, double digits. What do you think? I'm going to be a little bit of a devil's advocate here, and, and I think she's going to get a very substantial sentence, in my opinion, definitely in the double digits. When the judge looks at this case, uh, there's a multi-year fraud. There, there's several aggravating factors. There's a multi-year fraud. There was a concerted effort to cover up the failures of the blood testing machine, even going so far as to uh, create fake documentation and misleading investors. Ms. Holmes was the CEO and the top of the uh, organizational chart and directly involved in these misrepresentations. And in addition to that, as Mike was pointing out, sentencing in fraud cases like this is very often driven by the amount of the investor losses. And here we have $144 million of losses that occurred. And Ms. Holmes was directly involved with making those misrepresentations to investors. So I think that's going to weigh pretty heavily on the judge's mind. And I anticipate that she'll get a significant uh, sentence. All right. Let me ask you another question. Now, that's just on the counts that she was convicted on. There are a handful of counts, as you said, where the jury couldn't reach a verdict. I gather the prosecutor has the option of retrying those counts. Do you think that'll happen here? I think we're going to have to wait and see what the judge imposes on Ms. Holmes as her sentence. From the prosecutor's perspective, if the judge imposes a very significant sentence on her, really would not be in the public interest or a wise use of taxpayer money to retry her on the counts that the jury could not reach a verdict on. But if Ms. Holmes gets a very light sentence, the prosecutors may indeed be interested in retrying her on those cases where, where the jury deadlocked. Interesting. We also have another defendant who, as we discussed last time, was bifurcated. The two trials of Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani were separated, and he still awaits trial. Michael, what are the implications of this, this verdict and, and all it entails for that defendant? Uh, two thoughts, Rich. One simple, one unique. The simple reality is you always want to go second if there are two trials of the same set of operative facts, though even in the first trial, you get the summary FBI notes of prior statements of the witnesses to the government. There's no substitute for having seen them live, having them on the record, both for knowing what's coming and for more effective cross-examination. It's hard for the government to surprise you on a second go-around. The unique factor for Mr. Balwani that I think is going to make his trial quite interesting. I, I can't think of a case like this one. I, I won't rehearse all that we talked about before with regard to the testimony of Ms. Holmes about their personal relationship and her lengthy testimony regarding the abusive nature of that relationship. But she actually, in substance, accused him of criminal conduct, criminal conduct unrelated to the alleged fraud involving Theranos. So there's going to be, a, I think, a very unique challenge in trying to seat a jury in that same district. If I'm his lawyer, it is very much my job and responsibility to push hard to find 12 jurors who knew nothing about that first trial because it is pure prejudice to have heard in a way that did not get adjudicated that this person sexually assaulted someone. Well, that's interesting to me, too, because she testified, as you say, that Balwani engaged in criminal activity, 
But that testimony may never be heard by the jury in his trial, right? Quite likely will not. I, I mean, I've tried to think of ways in which the defense he puts on could open the door to that. But I think that the judge is extremely unlikely to allow it. It's at the very hinterlands of relevance. And the judges and, and usually prosecutors don't want to litter their cases with potentially appealable issues when they believe in their case. So I think that, that the issues relating to their personal relationship are probably going to stay outside the courthouse door and Bell on his truck. Well, sure, there are relevance issues as to the personal relationship, but I was also thinking about the practical question of her testifying. I mean, Robert, she can't be made to testify at Balwani's trial, can she? Well, I, I think it would partly depend on who the party is that would call her and what they would expect her to testify about. I think certainly if she was going to be called and any part of her testimony could incriminate her, she would likely still have a Fifth Amendment ability to decline to answer any questions, given that the jury deadlocked on other counts, which could further expose her to legal jeopardy. So I, I agree with Mike. I think it's unlikely that uh, Ms. Holmes would, would testify. And if anyone, either the prosecutor or the defendants, tried to subpoena her, she would probably have a very good argument for asserting that her testimony may incriminate her and decline to answer any questions. Right, which is one more, you know, this harkens back to our first discussion about this topic. The idea that these two trials were bifurcated in the first place, where each jury now has to get an incomplete factual presentation, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, two defendants, same set of crimes, sort of lobbing accusations at each other. I would think it more logical to have just put them on trial together, but Let's move from that. And we talked about the implications for Elizabeth Holmes and for Sonny Balwani. What about the broader implications? What do you think this conviction says about the government's appetite for going after white collar crime, what it says for Silicon Valley, venture capitalists? Robert, why don't you take that one first? Well, I think this trial was really remarkable insight into the way some Silicon Valley entrepreneurs work and some of the CD tactics that entrepreneurs use in raising capital. I mean, Elizabeth Holmes was the poster child for young entrepreneurs uh, starting companies. She dressed like Steve Jobs with the black turtleneck. She was at many startup conferences and, and was featured in, in a lot of the financial media. And it turns out, I think it revealed a culture and Silicon Valley of entrepreneurs being willing to, you know, exaggerate and then sometimes even outright uh, lie about the capabilities of their products and kind of looking the other way as long as, you know, the entrepreneur either believed in the product enough or believed it could change the world and investors just not really doing their due diligence. One of the extraordinary things that came out of the trial is investor testimony that they didn't perform sufficient due diligence because they felt they would not have enough time and might miss out on the investment opportunity. Right. They wanted to get in before they did the work. Michael, yes. what else? Well, look, I, I was struck by a lot of journalistic observation that sort of the smoking gun against Ms. Holmes was the fact that she had applied the corporate logos of a couple of pharmaceutical companies to her own pitch products or Theranos pitch materials. Look, it didn't strike me that that, that was such an unusual thing in Silicon Valley. 
the strategic partnerships among startups and various established companies are so ill-defined. I, I think that if there is anything that would make other venture capital players, other startup companies nervous, is that sort of thing. What Robert has described is correct. The, the, the fake it till you make it attitude in pre-public ventures like this is not limited to Elizabeth Holmes. Well, no, it's not. And, and nor is the kind of quick rise in prominence and value of this sort of startup enterprise. Robert, do you think that's going to get more government scrutiny going forward? Do you think in instances of, of new companies that sort of build up on that scale and that time frame, the government's going to be knocking at the door to take a look? This verdict may embolden the government to go in that direction. The prosecution against Elizabeth Holmes has been going on for a while. I haven't heard of any specific initiatives at the Department of Justice to target Silicon Valley. Perhaps this verdict may change that. But Silicon Valley is such an important uh, center of innovation and economic growth for our country. It is in our public interest to make sure that the market for pre-public companies and capital raising remains honest and investors can, can trust it. And so the prosecutors may feel emboldened by this verdict to continue looking into the business practices of Silicon Valley to make sure that entrepreneurs and companies are, are being truthful with investors and, and also the customers of the companies they start. One thing I would add is that we shouldn't forget it's wrong to call it an enforcement mechanism. But it's important to remember the difference between prosecutorial discretion and saving criminal prosecution for the worst of the worst. Lies don't necessarily go unpunished in an environment where civil fraud lawsuits get filed in the hundreds every day and people get adjudicated to be guilty of fraud or pay titanic settlements because they are credibly accused of fraud all the time and most of them don't go to jail. So where that line gets located is one question. But whether enforcement mechanisms or pushback short of sending somebody to jail for 15 years exists, it does and, and it has. Right. I think this doesn't necessarily lead to additional prosecutions because ultimately the fraud in this case is self-contained. This is fraud about particular technology and the financial viability of a particular company. It's not an industry-wide fraud. If I think about the financial crisis of 2007 and 8, you had industry-wide issues. If I think about market timing or late trading or those kind of things, those were industry-wide issues would set off a spate of prosecutions where, you know, it does raise some questions about the way Silicon Valley operates, the way venture capital operates, but at its core, it's about some blood testing technology that didn't really work. Oh, Rich, I think you make an excellent point. And I think that's one of the, maybe the, the, the mitigating factors here against the Department of Justice really going all into investigations of Silicon Valley is that we really haven't seen any evidence that there's extensive fraud in Silicon Valley or that this type of serious uh, misrepresentation is occurring on a, on a regular basis in Silicon Valley, which is a good thing. And hopefully the prosecution of Elizabeth Holmes will act as a deterrent and help prevent that sort of thing from happening in the future. 
another point I would make, and I, I recognize that the sentencing question has come and gone, but I think one of the things that's relevant here to the judge's overall appreciation of who this person is and what she did is the nature of pre-IPO investing, especially in tech companies. I recognize this is a relatively late stage company, as they say. It, it's not just an idea. It had an operating history. But by the same token, the people who can afford and get the opportunity to invest in these things are sophisticated investors who basically come into it with six chips. They're going to put down all six. They know they're going to lose on five. And if the sixth pops big, then they have a John D. Rockefeller-like opportunity for a skyrocket return. So it goes beyond mere disclosures to qualified investors. You are legally required to tell people they should be prepared to use all, lose all their money in one of these investments. And people who participate in these markets know that. Right. All right. Well, thank you guys both for coming on again. I, I had you in for the first discussion about this trial. And now I know you two are co-heads of the white collar group at our firm. Robert, maybe tell us a little bit about the coverage that that particular group provides. Yeah. Thanks, Rich. At Tartar Krinsky, we have a very cohesive group that Mike and I are co-heads of, and we both bring a unique, I think, background to it. I'm a former assistant regional director in the enforcement division of the SEC, and uh, Mike is a very experienced criminal defense lawyer. And together with us and our other partners and associates in the group, we have a very broad-based team with a lot of experience, both in the criminal and in the civil enforcement arena. And these days, there's a lot of overlap oftentimes in cases where the SEC or another regulator is investigating at the same time the Department of Justice is investigating. And in those situations, clients really need lawyers that have experience in, in both and know how to handle those types of parallel investigations and prosecutions. Right. And you overlap. I'm one of the co-heads of our Securities and Financial Services Litigation Group. Now, we obviously deal with the civil side of those issues, and I get uh, the good joy of working with you guys from time to time because those issues tend to overlap, and we have the capability here to deal with them on the criminal and on the civil level. So this brings us to closing arguments, as they say. Any particular takeaway from the verdict or where we are in these proceedings? I'll start with you, Mike. I guess I'll chew on this bone, Rich. In a case like this, where everybody's focus now is on what is the sentence going to be, I've already gone on about this guideline system and how it works. One thing that I wish journalists would fall out of love with is reporting going into a trial or at the moment of indictment, what the potential range of punishment is. The way they do it is if there are 10 counts, each of which has a 20-year maximum, they stack it and say, Joe Blow faces 200 years in jail. That is completely unrealistic. What should happen instead is that they should find a retired probation officer somewhere and say that if convicted on all counts, Ms. Jones would likely face a recommended range between nine and 12 years. Because it happens over and over again that people come away disappointed that somebody only gets 10 years on what was once reported as a 200-year case. That's ridiculous and it ought to stop. Robert, what about you? Yeah, I, I think my takeaway is, is that this saga is, is not over yet. It's still unfolding. We're all looking to the future in terms of what sentence Ms. Holmes will get and how the trial of Mr. Balwani will go. 
and then ultimately what impact on the, the business practices of Silicon Valley this verdict may have, if any. So I think these issues are still very much alive and we'll be closely following them to see how they play out. We will indeed. And uh, I will reassemble this auspicious group if the circumstances call for it. Mike Grudberg, Robert Heim, thank you guys very much for joining me again today. Thank you, Rich. Thanks, Rich. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at tartarkrinsky.com. You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief. Mm-hmm.